You may know that the This Sustainable Life podcast has grown to a family of podcasts with hosts reaching audiences that I wouldn't reach on my own, usually focusing on topics that are different than I would focus on relevant to their communities. I recommend that you listen to them. You might also know that I have conversations regularly with the other hosts because we have common interests and we like to talk about the various journeys that we're on in living more sustainably. The episode you're about to hear is a conversation I had with Allison, who hosts This Sustainable Life coming out of Lancashire, England. You'll hear me talking about my local park, Washington Square Park, which is one of the most, sad to say, drug-ridden in New York City. Because it's my backyard and I refuse to retreat from the degradation that a lot of my neighbors are retreating from, moving out of the city and things like that, you will hear my passion. This was all extemporaneous, so you can tell the time that I spend in my neighborhood talking to my neighbors and politicians to help. But please, translate in your mind the addicts giving up and trashing common land that I talk about in the episode to all of us, American culture, Western culture, as addicts to air conditioning, flying, 20-minute hot showers in the middle of the summer because the air conditioning is on so high, SUVs, meat, big families, and all sorts of things like that. At 80% overweight and obese, we Americans and most of the Western world are addicted to refined sugar and fat. I mentioned in the recording how the pollution coming from the crack and heroin addicts is small compared to rich people's pollution, but I want to start you off with that perspective. Since I'm illustrating in this episode our culture and all of our behavior that's not helping anyone as our health, longevity, abundance, and stability are decreasing these days, not increasing. In this episode, I'm talking about them, but I'm talking about us, all of us. If you think that heroin and crack users who see no future for themselves actually do have futures if they just overcome their addictions, then you know that you can too if you're addicted to flying, SUVs, and so on. Your excuses, all of our excuses, that, oh, I have to for work, I have to for family, these are as specious and self-serving as theirs. Please listen to this episode thinking of us as the addict. You will hear potential solutions. You can live these solutions yourself. You can live without flying. Yes, yes, you can. Without meat, without long showers, without more than one child, and so on. When you do, it opens the door for you to lead others. Leading others multiplies your effect. The effect of any one person divided by 7.9 billion obviously rounds off to zero. But when we lead others, we can multiply that effect. So leading others is the big goal here. Addicts need role models to see that they can switch. I hope you believe how I had to transition from being just like the average American, flying all the time, eating packaged food. I was just like everyone around me. And if you think that you can't live without flying or whatever... I put to you that you can, and I put to you from my experience and the experience of the reason for this podcast is to bring well-known people to start living in some way sustainably so that we can see them as role models, and it happens over and over again. If you haven't started, I recommend giving it a shot. In any case, here's an episode with mostly me talking about the state of Washington Square Park as an illustration of American life and the solutions available to all of us to live joyfully, sustainably. So this is Josh, and I'm speaking to Allison, and we were just about to record a different episode for The Sustainable Life, and I started talking about, she said, how are you doing? And I started talking about something very serious in my neighborhood. So I'm going to say this to Allison, but I'm really saying it to everyone. I live in Greenwich Village, Manhattan. A lot of people describe it as, it's a very genteel neighborhood. The brownstones are in Manhattan, so they're expensive. For a long time, it's been a lot of artists and musicians, lately more bankers, which is weird for me because I make less money than almost anybody that I know, and I figured out all the places to get by without paying a whole lot. And, uh, and I bought my place a long time ago. I couldn't afford to rent here now. Mm. Washington Square Park has always had in the Northwest corner weed dealers, at least as long as I lived here, which is over 20 years. 
since the pandemic, it's been overrun, especially the Northwest corner with much more serious stuff, the drug dealers uh, and users, but it's heroin, crack. Last fall, I was taking pictures of when I'd see syringes of the syringes. Mm. Last, a couple of weeks ago, I saw for the first time, actually like someone just injecting, seeing the needle going through the tattoo into the arm. So Allison, I'm, I can see her, the listeners can't. And it's like, yeah. it's, it, I cringed and winced in, involuntarily as I saw it. It was like a group of people, I guess they were waiting their turn after this guy. Ugh. So I made it habit. You know, I have all these Sid shots. One of them is I pick up at least one piece of garbage every day. Last year I said, all right, the Northwest corner, I'm going to pick up at least three pieces of garbage there on top of the garbage that I pick up any other place. And I haven't missed a day since. I'm trying to think if there's been, even when I've gone to stay at a friend's place overnight, I haven't stayed two nights elsewhere since getting back here from my mom's house. So I've, I haven't missed a day in all this time. The other day I come by and the Northwest corner is blocked off. The cops have put up barricades. It's empty in the Northwest corner. Now, as an aside, I still, there's a fence around the park. So I walk along the fence and I reach through the fence to pick up because there's so much garbage mm. that I don't even have to really enter the Northwest corner. I can just reach through the fence and get all the detritus that's strewn all over the place because that's the world that we live in. And it would be nice to say that they are these other people, but this is a product of, an, of a system with a certain amount of, I'm not going to go into the system, the system it causes, but I, I don't think that anyone thinks, I'm not sure how many people would argue that if you have a certain amount of inequality, then there are going to be people who see less hope for the future. The feeling of when you're at a, at a casino and you've, you went in with, I don't know, $500 and I have 10 bucks or actually, no, I, I actually read that apparently a large part of casinos winnings are people at the end when they're about to leave and they're like, oh, I'll just throw it all on red and see what happens. This uh, hopelessness, this feeling like, what does it matter? I, I give up. There are a lot of people like that in society, in a society that, sticks in everyone's faces. Look at all the stuff, but you can't have it. Mm. I've gone into more into the causes than I meant to. So they closed this area off yesterday, or at least yesterday, uh, maybe it was this week. Now it's been a couple of days now that I've been reaching through the fence to pick up the garbage. Oh, and last night on, there was the sixth precinct periodically has build the block meetings, meetings where they meet with people. Last night, there was one online. They've been doing it online since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Everyone is saying, Washington Square Park, everyone who lives here, all these people are like, I've lived here 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, never seen anything this like this. So people have been here through the seventies and eighties and there's a feeling of hopelessness. And the cops are like, we'll take care. They're not saying we'll take care of it. They're like, there's a certain amount they can and can't do. They have to see something happen for it to be illegal. People are allowed to be in the park. It's obvious to anyone. You just stand there for five minutes. You can see people dealing. No, I mean, it's not like it's a mystery. There's not enough cops, and I don't think anybody wants a cop every couple feet in the park or around the park. And the cops are like, well, we're closing the park earlier. It used to close at midnight. Now they're going to close it at 10 p.m. But one, they're not getting it. Two, there's not enough of them. Three, if there were enough of them, I don't think we want a police state. But the biggest thing is that that doesn't address the cause of people wanting to go there. And they'll this just is move somewhere else, which is less policed or do it earlier or out. Yeah. Yes. We'll so the phrase whack-a-mole it. came up many times in the conversation online last night. And the cops know that it's whack-a-mole. And it's not, I'm talking about this corner or this park, but actually it moves on to Waverly Place and Washington Place towards Sixth Avenue. And then it again starts again on Seventh Avenue by Christopher Street, where there's another small park. There's a general feeling of this is out of control and there's no way to get a handle on it. But I think everybody's thinking, the cops have to fix this. 
now there may be some sentiment in the cops after all this BLM stuff of like, we're, ne- we're not going to do everything we possibly can so that people respect and understand our value. That's possible. But I think that people are retreating. A lot of people are moving out. I mean, people moved out because of the pandemic before any of this happened. And that is going to lower property values and make people not want to move in. Then people who have the most money, have the most resources, tend to move away to the Hamptons or whatever, to their second homes. Mm-hmm. And I look back at going to my mom's house. I don't fault myself because there's a pandemic and who knew what could have happened. It could have metastasized in some crazy way. And the inst- instruction was to social distance. And so I, so I did. When I came back, I wish I'd stayed here. Well, I didn't know then what I, what I did when I got back. But I don't really like how many people moved away and don't treat this as their neighborhood. So today in the park, it is metastasized. The drugs are, are all over. People are free to sit where they want, but they're not free to break the law. I mean, smoking is actually illegal, let alone smoking weed. And there's actually a big difference between the weed dealers and the heroin users, because the weed dealers, I don't think, if they're using the weed, I don't see it. But even if they mm-hmm. are, there's a big difference between the cultures. And I don't think there's a lot of mixing because the weed dealers are providing a service, however illegal, they're looking out for the customers. Mm-hmm. The heroin users are there for themselves. And there's a hopelessness in their eyes, in their manner, in their dress. They're not looking out for others. They are just giving in. Yeah. That's the best I can describe it. Surviving. Hopeless. There's no sense of service. There's no sense of community. I mean, there's actually among them a sense of community, but their hair, their dress, their manner, there's nothing. They shuffle around. The weed dealers are looking out. And I, I don't like the weed dealers either, but I don't think they mix. I don't think they like each other. Now, the Northwest corner is empty, but the central part is now full. And so I just happen to sit in a place near where they were because I wanted to sit in the shade and they were sitting in the shade. And I look across, there's a statue, century old at least, which for America is old and Europe maybe <laughs> not so old. And just every couple of minutes, someone goes behind it and they're clearly urinating there. Men, women, everyone. There's a bathroom, but that's going to be, it can't serve that many people. You could see people who normally walk through Washington Square Park. I guess normally they would avoid the Northwest corner. Now they're like, oh, this is a problem. I think they're going to retreat. I think people are going to spend less and less time in Washington Square Park. And I am thinking if the solution, okay, long-term solution, I don't know. But one solution that I think could work is that, I don't know what the population is of Greenwich Village, but, or of, of people who use Washington Square Park who live here and have a stake in its future as a comfortable place for families and children. I would say, got to be 100,000 people. Right. Wow. Know, but say tens of thousands. And mm-hmm. there's a couple dozen people who don't live here. The park closes every night at midnight, soon to be 10 p.m. That means, I don't know what it opens, maybe 5 a.m. That means it's empty when it opens. I think that if people who lived here took turns just sitting on the benches, roughly equally spaced out, so there's no real space for there's no real space for people to congregate and form a I don't know what you call it. It's not a community. I mean it's a community, but the heroin users, that they won't have a place to settle down. Now outside the park, Waverly Place and Washington Place, I don't know how to put it. They're it's not infected, but it's like overrun with people living on the street to some extent exercising their right to do what they want Mm -hmm. to some extent people asking the cops last night were like, I see them cooking heroin 
I see them cooking meth, whatever, you know, the person's like, I don't really know what it is, but it's, there's no secret. And that's not legal. I don't think it's even to their own benefits. How to organize people. Is it feasible to have just people in Washington Square Park equally spaced out for, say, the place is open 16 hours a day? Shifts on the bench. <laughs> yeah. There's certainly a fair amount of businesses around here, and they're going to suffer if people move away. I've had on my podcast now, I think three or four mayoral candidates, a candidate for borough president and candidates for other elected positions. So I want to talk to them. I don't want to take the sitting down. I mean, I feel I've been doing important work, environmental stewardship work, writing the book and so forth. But this is my neighborhood. There's a lot of similar causes of people just looking out for themselves and not their community. America has a very strong, feel, you know, the cowboy mentality of, of this illusion of what I do doesn't affect anyone else, so I can do what I want. If I were a conservative American, I would probably be thinking, the cities are all liberal, and you do this to yourselves. You should have some more law and order, because the smaller towns, well, the smaller towns, heroin and uh, meth are hitting them pretty hard, too. Right. And I feel like we have been moving away from community for some time. I think restoring community, actively working at it, we aren't really doing it. How to do it? Do I want to do it? Do I want to make this a big thing? Do I want to put everything else on hold or make this a part of what I'm doing? So what, what would the strategy be? What would be your community building strategy other than the bench like other than physically stopping people from being able to congregate? The strategy would be to form something like a town hall. Mm -hmm. uh, America's built on uh, you know, the first, now I got to be very careful. The you know, Europeans, when they came here in the free North would form small communities and there'd be town halls and there'd be participatory government, uh, jury duty and things like that. To form community deliberately, for people who have a stake in the future of an area to, we have numbers and we have a stake in the future. I don't think that they're violent. I don't think that they're looking for to hurt anyone. I'm sure that they are aware that they're hurting themselves in the sense of someone throwing down, oh, I'll just throw it all in black and then I'll leave the casino. They're giving up on themselves and, or maybe, they, I mean, if they have no hope, maybe this is their, be their best option. So in the long run, it has to be creating something for them so that this is not their best option yeah except that the environment uh, all right so let me get into some of the deeper stuff i think i've talked to you about this book that i've recently read called work by james Sussman. he talks about other societies hunting and gathering not you know pre-agriculture or different than agriculture not pre different or one of his points was that we have created a culture of growth well he doesn't say growth he would say scarcity Hunting and gathering societies don't live in scarcity. When they go out, when they're hungry, they go out and get food from the ground or from an ant, they hunt it, and then they eat it. They do not stockpile it. If there's plenty of food and they could stockpile it, they still don't. They just leave it there because they know it'll be there when they get back. Agricultural societies don't do this. We store stuff and we, we have huge, I mean, we have billionaires and, and 100 billionaires. That doesn't exist in other cultures, you might say, well, we've created science and we can, we've got the germ theory of disease and we've got all sorts of modern stuff. But actually, when you look at the longevity and health of them, it's, it only very, very recently did agricultural societies catch up 
to the health and longevity of hunting and gathering societies. They work fewer hours. They have more leisure time. There were issues of getting past childbirth, but if they got, if you got past childbirth, you lived to 60 years old or so. Today, for the first time, the current generation is going to be young, is going to die younger than the past generation. Everything about the environment says that that's going to increase dramatically. Scarcity, if you Mm -hmm. fear that you don't have access to something in the future, if your future is worse than your present, if you have no hope for a better future, enjoy the moment, throw it all in red and see what happens. No one's like that. Well, I I can't speak to what it's like in a hunting and gathering society, but we have created a system. And one of the things I want to do is switch from a growth mentality to enjoying what you have mentality, not out of desperation, but out of appreciation. So I guess in the long run, that is what I want to work on. Now I'm going to say something that I really like that. I don't know if you read that yesterday, I think it was yesterday, Exxon had a corporate, a big corporate meeting. They voted out some people in order to, uh, some um, activist investors voted in new board members to act on sustainability because Exxon was dragging its feet. Oh, great. This was major. Yeah, it's a major change that no one expected or no one expected now. People mm-hmm. knew it had to happen at some point. This is major progress. I don't know the details. I only skimmed the articles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tweeted to Bill McKibben, whom I've met several times. And he said, he was like, big red letter day. I forget, like dominoes falling. I forget exactly how I put it. And he said, thank you. I wrote back to him. You're thanking us. Thank you, all caps. And we're just getting started. Because I have, you know, on my podcast, I I ask people what the environment means to them and ask them to invite them to act on that. And someday I will have the CEO of Exxon on. And the CEO of Exxon, I guarantee, has something, the environment means something to him. When he acts on that, that will lead to, at some point, a major corporate leader. Maybe the CEO of Exxon, maybe some of the big polluter like Starbucks or H&M, Dow, DuPont. One of them will say, we're going to change this company. Mm. We're going to go to the board. We're going to, maybe if it's Delta Airlines, they say, we're going to go to the board. We're going to write off some assets. We're just going to get rid of some airplanes. We're not going to fly them again. We're not going to sell them. Some people are going to get hurt by this because our stock price is going to drop like a rock. So the billionaires among us are going to subsidize the people whose pensions are depending on this. Everyone's going to lose a bunch, but we're going to go on history Mm -hmm. for thousands of years. People look back and say, they were the ones who started it. We will have a reputation, this person will say, on par with, in this country, George Washington, in the world, Buddha, Jesus, Aristotle, on that level, they will do it with a smile on their face. Mm. Because it's clear, yes, there's a lot of money, there are a lot of assets producing a lot of wealth in the oil refineries on the Gulf Coast in this country in the fishing fleets that are destroying the oceans, the ability to sustain life and so forth. And if those assets go away, people will have to struggle to live in a different way. When your country, England, was considering abolishing the slave trade in the early 1800s, people said, well, what about some person who built a boat? Slavery was normal at the time. You know, this is not normal for people to think about, but at the time, people considered slavery absolutely normal. And it had been for thousands of years in every culture, not some European invention, certainly not some British invention. Now, British changed the scale of it, of huge plantations across the ocean. So the people who were profiting from and controlling the situation were, couldn't see the horrors they were paying for. 
nor the shareholders in those companies. And when that became apparent, people like Thomas Clarkson, William Wilberforce, Granville Sharp, and so forth, they worked to end this system, or at least make it illegal. At first, the trade illegal, which happened in 1807. But what about someone who built a boat in the late 1700s to do something that was totally legal and totally normal and to bring slaves from Africa to the New World? And then from the New World, they would bring coffee and rum and molasses and sugar to England. Then they go down to Africa and, and do the triangle slave trade. Make it illegal. Now this guy, this guy who's probably got a family to feed, he's put all his money and everything into this asset of this giant boat, small by today's standard, but a big deal at that time. What about him? Mm. Shouldn't we think about him? We ultimately said, we have to change. Yes, some people would be affected by this. Yes, we have to take that into account somehow. But that's not going to stop us from stopping the slave trade. Yeah. Today, people talk a lot about, like I talk about uh, shopping more at farmer's markets. And people are like, what about the single mom in a food desert? Well, what are we going to do to help her? Shopping at farmer's markets puts money into the shopping, into the farmer's market system and takes it out of the Walmart system. You don't, we do not want Walmarts. I don't care if people say, oh, it's the largest purveyor of organic food. So if we want organic food, we should put Walmarts into Harlem and the Bronx and Walmart knows how to extract value. They impoverish. McDonald's, mm. people say, people don't have time to go and cook. McDonald's, they can get a meal really quick and a happy meal is, is cost very little. McDonald's does not give you extra time. McDonald's is the cause of them having less time. McDonald's is the cause of them not having money to buy food instead of doof. Farmer's markets. So everyone who, every time someone shops at a McDonald's, they're accelerating the system that impoverishes, that creates the system of, of impoverished neighborhoods where people feel like they're not having time. Yeah. Spend money in farmer's market. Now the farmers can go into new neighborhoods. So kind of taking your point or following the thread through about, you know, that CEO of Exxon and asking them going through the Spodek method. Here's Mm -hmm. a crazy idea for you. What if (laughs) you were to gently, safely befriend some of these heroin users and start having a conversation with them about the environment and what it means to them. I'm not saying at all that it would be, you would go up and just say, hello, I'm Josh, what is it, you know, but starting off with building that community and including them as part of the community. And a lot of these people, as I understand it, you know, they've suffered lots of trauma in their life and like you say that this is now the the best option for them they often lose a lot of self-esteem and they don't think that they can do anything more or be anything more like this is just all they all they are and what if there was something that we could bring to them around showing them trying them a new thing that is in line with their values that they might have lost Originally, I envisioned something like that. I envisioned that I would go through there enough and people would start recognizing me and I'd connect with people. And then I would in some way communicate, mobilize them to have this. If, if you're here all the time, it doesn't make sense to have a cleaner area. To some extent, this has worked in that I've met some of the weed dealers and I've spoken to them a couple of times. I've had several, not long conversations, but half an hour, 45 minutes conversations with a couple of them and they recognize me and, and some of them are more regular. The heroin, the ones with the syringes, I can't understand what they're saying. Yeah. There's just no coherence. 
they don't, it's, it's scary. It's I'm there. I'm afraid to be near them. I can and understand that. Yeah. One I'm time cool. one came up to me, I had picked up some garbage off of one of the tables and threw it away. And the guy came up and was saying, thank you. Thank you. Now I could not understand him. And this was before my second shot had after the second shot, but before two weeks. So I'm wearing a, a mask, but he's not. And he kept getting within 50, six feet of me. And so I keep stepping back, but he's talking quietly because he's mainly, and I can't be sure exactly what he was saying. Cause it was really hard to understand. He's talking quietly. I presume because he's looking around, like, I don't want other people to see or hear what I'm saying, but also it's hard to understand him. He's saying, my understanding was he was saying, thank you. I feel bad. That was my garbage that you picked up. And I feel bad about that. But also he's saying, I, I think he was saying, I'm not like them and I'm stuck with them. I don't want to be like that, but I can't really get out of that. Mm. Now, what he's actually saying, and I'm going to get in trouble for, all right, I'm going he's black. So he can say the N word. He's saying we N words are this way. You white people are that way. He's saying, like, I don't understand you guys, but you have limits and you don't do this. Mm-hmm. And we get stuck in this mess. Jeez. So I'm kind of feeling like this guy's opening up to me. It's something, yeah. I feel like there's something meaningful here because he's not like just sometimes they just come up and say thank you. And, and they don't really have something more to say as best I can tell. Yeah. It's also more of a rotating cast. They don't seem to stick around as much. There's a few that I recognize month, for months on end but they're the most crazy, like uh, okay. they, they don't recognize me from time to time. I would like to connect with them. And that was an original goal. And with the weed dealers, there has been some extent to that, but to be a white man, clearly of self-sustaining, I get treated like the stupidest idiot. I mean, they're just like, you have no clue what you're doing here. You don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. They, the reverse of this would be so micro macro aggressions they're just like lecturing me on the most obvious things. You know how it sucks when someone's like telling you something you already know and everyone knows that you know it. And for someone to think that you don't know it is insulting. Mm. I'm not there to argue with people. So I listen and I try to create meaningful connections. That's what I do is I teach meaningful connection exercise. I do that with them and it doesn't really get very far. <laughs> I've talked about one of the things I thought of, I coach people. I get paid a lot of money by NYU, by executives to help them develop initiative and leadership skills. And I thought maybe I could do that with these guys. It's all guys. I mean, the dealers are all guys. Users, it's a mix of men and women, but maybe I could help them take some initiative and figure out opportunities that they can't see otherwise. Now there are gonna be huge barriers. They might not have addresses. They might not be able to have internet access and things that are rudimentary things to get meaningful jobs and whatever jobs they could possibly have access to possibly are worse than the drugs. The last time I worked at Burger King was in the late 80s or early 90s, perhaps part of why I'm vegan now. <laughs> and I did not like that job and I didn't expect it to be long-term. And if someone was an adult working there and they have no hope, I mean, maybe they could become manager, but I don't think there's a whole lot of hope for that. In, in a city as dense as New York, this managerial position is already full and they're probably all Actually, I have no idea the business of, of franchises in Manhattan of McDonald's. I don't think there's a lot of potential. There's an, I don't think there's a lot of future for them. I talked to a couple and I asked them, like, do you read a lot? And a couple of them, English wasn't their first language. I don't know if they're citizens. A couple of them, they just weren't interested. I didn't say like, hey, I got a book. I can share it with you. 
but I, I've been looking for an opening to say, I work with people and I don't want to sound patronizing, but I, you know, mm. to say, I work with some really people who know what they're doing, people who don't know what they're doing. And I help them take on build passions and, and take on things. I'm not going to force myself in there. Yeah. I was there for a couple hours today, maybe 90 minutes. Some people came by from a local hospital, St. Vincent's, and they're giving out, it, it, there's a sign on their cart. It says uh, free food, toiletries, but mainly food and toiletries. Middle-aged women, I guess 60 years old, they look so happy. And they go up, they go right into the mix of these people. And they're like, would you like anything? Would you like anything? And of course, they're completely innocuous. Most people are like, we don't care. We don't need it. Because they go around and they ask for a dollar here and there and probably a couple of dollars here and there. It's like enough to, for them to live on. I'm not really sure. I have no idea what they're living on. But I can tell you what they're eating because I can see the garbage strewn around them and it's all doof, nothing healthy. But I know that what they, the people from the hospital, I presume volunteers give out smiles. I think some of the bags look like they had some sandwiches and then maybe a piece of fruit. The toiletries would be toothbrushes, toothpaste, maybe some deodorant, uh, sanitary pads, wet wipes. All the stuff I see long after they're gone because I'm and water bottles. There's, there's water fountains there. In the, so there's no need for water bottles. Mm. It's all garbage all over the place. They use it for like 10 seconds. This is not, it's showing some support, but the support is giving them garbage. I mean, giving them stuff that becomes garbage almost overwhelmingly. I don't think they value it. Mm. I don't think that it changes anything. I can't see any other situation except that the people who are giving it out are doing it for themselves, not for them. I think it would be more effective if they just came in and smiled and said, I appreciate you. But the giving stuff mm. actually distances themselves from them and creates something that 500 to 1,000 years from now, people are still going to have to deal with for this moment of not really making much of a difference. Did you say that to the volunteers? <laughs> I wanted to go up to them. It's kind of funny because I, if I walk up to the volunteers, I don't approach the dealers and the users. I could, I mean, they're right there, but it's awkward. I don't know how to, most of the time when they approach me, it's to ask for money. Mm. There's no sense of me as a human being. They're not treating me as a human. They're treating me as possible pockets. Sometimes I'll come up and be like, hey, I'm going to sketch you or I'll show you a card trick. And it's, that's asking me for money. I'd be happy if someone came, that one guy who came up to me, if you would just keep six feet away, because I, I no problem with him, but a virus is a total other story. Yeah. I would have liked to have continued that. To, I'd like to meet them. I would. Yeah. But they're not approaching me either. I, I don't, I mean, it, it's really a, a, a huge divide that I don't know how to bridge it. I guess like there is there are absolutely some things that would add chaos and unpredictableness into the situation due to the nature of the drugs and also then if they're using then there's like a question of time and effectiveness because like you say you're not going to get anything out of anybody right after they've taken anything but it reminds me of um in one of my episodes I interviewed Francesca Trotman the Love the Oceans founder and she was saying how she got with the community of the Mozambique fishermen and it took years. They had somebody else there to support, you know, who who knew the culture, who was able to be that bridge. And then over time, that's how they built trust as an organization and, you know, her work through this bridge and the community. But it took 
years in order for them to do anything like it's a slow process of building building that trust and to do anything meaningful but if the people who were there they're constantly changing or you know not in the best state they don't perhaps see why you're going to talk with them with another person then that adds all that level of complexity yeah they're leaving they're coming and going Mm. and uh, I presume in Mozambique, she's with Mozambicans, if that's the right term. There's also, you know, when you go to 7th Avenue, it's a total different scene over there, I think. Probably some people are going back and forth. But I don't know if it's, it's just happening in London, uh, in Lancaster, that they're undoing their mufflers so that they're really loud. The cars, they sound like they're drag racing. <laughs> and, they, and motorcycles and cars. And I've noticed. Yeah, you're laughing because it does sound kind of funny, but when you're here, it's horrible. There's no reason for it, except I guess it's some sort of macho display. It contributes to the sense of lawlessness. It's, it's, I can't see it as anything other than antisocial, except within a small community where people are probably impressed with each other. But every now and then you'll see a cavalcade of dozens of cars or motorcycles that come through and they're just all driving their engines. It appears to be a, a show of dominance. If I look at it from a anthropological perspective or sociological perspective, I guess it's tough for the cops to do anything about it because they're moving around and you can't like set up a blockade and catch them. And, but I don't see much of a sense of people trying. There is a big precedent in, so New Yorkers will know the names of Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs. Robert Moses was a, uh, came in as a parks commissioner and reformer of government and he built roads starting from the 1920s through, he held office until the 1980s, never elected, always appointed. The book about him was called The Power Broker because he was adept at using power in one position to get power in another position. So he was more powerful than mayors and governors. And one time he wanted to do something and took the president to stop him. The big example is like the Cross Bronx Expressway, this extraordinarily expensive road that destroyed gutted communities. His view was, we want transportation to get things to and from all these places. We need transportation. They didn't yet know at the beginning that cars or roads, they build a road, it would be uncrowded. And then a little while later, it would be crowded. People adjust to the new road. So they change the traffic patterns to drive there. The road builders would say, oh, looks looks like there's more demand than we expected. We need to build another road. So they'd widen that road, build another parallel road. And they kept building more and more and more roads, tearing up more and more and more communities. At some point, the rest of the world picked up Building roads induces traffic. It causes <laughs> people to drive in new habits to drive more. So the more roads you build, the more traffic you get. But now communities, it messes up the local communities. So if you have a city with all these roads through it, suddenly you lose all the communities and people all move outside the cities. Now there's less of a community left, so build more roads. Jane Jacobs wrote for a magazine. She uh, architectural. She was a housewife. I think is how people describe her, living a couple blocks from where I am right now in Greenwich Village. She looked around and said, neighborhoods are what make people want to live here. And people moving around, running into each other, and not literally, you know, knowing their neighbors. One time, people out walking their dogs on the street. And then a little while later, it's people rushing off to go to work. And a few minutes later, or a little bit later, there's um, mothers taking the strollers out to take their kids to the park. And a little while later, it's the business, the, the delivery trucks come through. And a little bit later, it's the, the guys coming home from work. And, and there's always people coming and going. There's always eyes on the street. And she said, that's what makes a neighborhood worth living in. Put a wide highway through that and you've destroyed that. And now there's nothing holding a community together. And there's no point, 
there's nowhere from where people would go to where people go. The point of the road is to serve the community, not for the community to serve the road. Mm-hmm. So form the community. So when she was getting big, it was because Robert Moses was now starting putting, he wanted to put a parking lot into Central Park, which is like holy among New Yorkers. And I think that's not just Manhattan. It's at the time, this would be the 60s. So I guess the population of the earth was maybe 3 billion, 4 billion people. But New York was still roughly the same number, same population. So it's like a bigger part of America at the time. Okay. And then he wanted to build a road across what's now Soho, I think through Little Italy, a highway in lower Manhattan. And then later he was going to build a highway in mid-Manhattan, which would, I think anybody today would say that would not improve property values or security. Other neighborhoods didn't have the gentility and the, the connections to do anything about it or to, they, they would mount resistance, but he would plow through it. Robert Moses and his team of engineers and um, his control over government, they would just gut neighborhoods that didn't have the political clout that Manhattan areas did or lower Manhattan. So Jane Jacobs is the name. She wrote this book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, where she organized, she was the main, the principal person, I think, who organized resistance to Robert Moses building these highways. If we look at Robert Moses as a above the law gangster, which that's arguable. I, I mean, he, he certainly was beyond accountability in many ways. I don't know if he was breaking the law, but he certainly wasn't responsive to the people. He wasn't, anyway, let's just imagine if he was a gangster, then she was, she opposed that yeah. and succeeded despite being a slight middle-aged woman without resources anywhere on close to his. That's something that gives me hope. That's a role model yeah. of someone who was able to keep out overwhelming forces that had gutted other neighborhoods. And I think was, a, I think in American history, she is a figure, a, a major figure of like a Thoreau level person to change culture of looking at inner cities as potential beacons of community and value as opposed to something to be moved away from to a suburb. Do you know, I've got this vision. There's two things that are coming to mind. One of which is, you know, the Peanuts cartoon where they like set up like a little stand. Oh, and Lucy like, Van Pelt's, uh, says the psychiatrist is in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's like um, advice or whatever, or, you know, lemonade or whatever. Yeah. And then um, the other thing is something that my uh, boyfriend's grandpa always used to say when you're like, oh, happy birthday. What do you want for your birthday? And he used to say, I don't want anything, just a smile and a kind word. And uh, we've always like, yeah, just said that. That's such a lovely thing. And then for some reason, I just imagine you in the park with this kind of peanuts stand just there. Well, you're there anyway. Um, I don't know what you do when you're there. And it just has, you know, like, talk to me if you want a smile and a kind word and you just allow anyone in the community to come to you and then you just start a conversation with them i have thought of doing something like that to put up a a table that says actually thinking along those lines saying nyu professor leadership coach free advice and now i wouldn't do that in that corner because i don't i guess i could think about doing that corner i would do it partly for experience Mm. Uh, partly if I brought a bunch of books, I bet I'd sell a, b- a bunch of books that way. Because <laughs> my books, I think, are, are pretty good. I've not gotten around to doing that. Now, let's talk about a lot of the other people who go through this. A lot of, of NYU students, less so now because uh, their semester ended. 
but the garbage all over the place is everywhere. Everyone, everyone goes in there overwhelmingly. I was with a friend and I said, how many people do you think, what fraction of the people here brought with them disposable packaging? She looks around and she goes, I'd say about 85%. We used to eat three square meals a day at home and people were perfectly healthy. Now people feel like if I go, the slightest whim and they'll buy something that the package will be around for a thousand years. Mm. The slightest whim. And people can go for hours. People can go for a day without water. I'm not suggesting people go for a day without water. Yeah, I know a lot of everyone out there is like, oh, old people. What about people with conditions? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The remaining 99.9999999%. If you yourself are not one of those people, then they can figure it out. They're not going to die. But for the rest of us, we don't need water. Every, the marketers have gotten us to believe that it's not just that water is healthy. It's not even now people think it's unhealthy if you don't have water with you at all times. People live in deserts. People live in the Sahara Desert, in the Kalahari Desert. And people here with well, there's water fountains everywhere. Are you, you're worried about COVID? I mean, people, if you're pushing a stroller, bring your water with you in a bottle, in a reusable container, or just go for a little while without water. In any case, everyone, I mean, 85% of the people are bringing in garbage. It's overflowing. People leave it. it like, they'll eat something and like the napkin gets blown away and they just watch it go into the wind. They get a salad from Sweet Green, which is... They get a bag, like a heavy duty bag. They get like forks and, and napkins and stuff that they could bring from home. You can bring your own fork. You can bring your own salad. So everything, I'm not laying all this down, all the mess in Washington Square Park on the drug users and drug dealers. Yeah. Because everyone, the richer they are, probably the more garbage they're producing overall. I mean, certainly any homeless person is nowhere close to Bill Gates' level of lowering the Earth's ability to sustain life and society. So I'd like to hope to influence him as well. But one of the things I was thinking of is getting a friend to take his camera and follow me around. And I'd carry my bag of garbage from home and I would walk up to random people. I, would I do this? I'm not sure. And say, look, it's a free country. You can get whatever food you want. But this bag right here is 18 months worth of garbage for my entire house. And it's less than you have for that one meal. Free country, do what you want, but it's possible to go otherwise. If you care to comment on that, go ahead. Uh, the listeners can't see the smile on Allison's face. I don't know exactly what I would say or do because I've never done anything like that before. And I expect the first couple of times I'd piss some people off. You know, you got to mess up a few times to figure out how to, what works and what doesn't work. I don't know where that would go. I've thought about it. Because how do you talk to people about like, people just have lost the sense that food grows out of the ground there's no plastic. Apples don't actually involve plastic. There aren't stickers in nature. We've put them on them ourselves and we don't have to. And a sticker is like the least thing. I just walk around and I pick up like 50 pieces in just walking a lap of, of Washington Square Park, which is a really small park. And that's not going out of my way. So I was smiling because I could imagine those people who you're approaching thinking, oh my God, there's that crazy heroin user coming and talking to me. I don't know what he's saying. <laughs> I don't know what's me, I don't, it'd be tough to identify me as a heroin user. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, that's a bit tongue in cheek. But I guess that's the full steam ahead version, isn't it? That's the two-ton truck steamroller and bam. A two-ton truck would be accusing them and... That I, I've at least recognized not to go in with judgment. I mean, they'll feel judged. But 
I wouldn't actually be judging. I'll just be, I'd be showing there's another way. There mm. are alternatives. But I think most people, and I say that because I feel, you know, I still, I came from that most people camp. It wouldn't really resonate. There's definitely a process of like, you know, and then you really know. And I think why this project method is so good is it because it allows people to start that journey of their personal knowing and their personal knowing might not come from the plastic or, you know, trash that they create. It might come from something else. It might come from fashion or whatever, whatever they're interested in. You know what I realized recently? The spotting method will work one-on-one. And I just went to a cocktail party the other day and this guy who's a highbrow finance guy was just going on and on about how things are fine because Americans are, if he heard me, I'm not saying it right at all, but something like he was saying that America's absolute level of pollution is decreasing. Now I pointed out, you know, we've outsourced it. We put our factories in other places, which now they pollute more because there's less regulation. He was like, I mm, hadn't thought of that, but he's like, so everything's fine. If you're going from using five earths and you drop down to 4.9 earths, he's imagining that it's going to, he's got an image in his head of it's all going to be fine. Mm. And he'll find the evidence to support that. Then I was, I'm talking for a while and I keep trying to exit this conversation. He keeps getting back into it because he's like, he likes philosophy. So he likes to argue. Mm. I'm like, I don't like to argue. And then I, I finally, I'm like, what am I doing? I say, what does the environment mean to you? And I do this product method with him and it, everything changes. <laughs> he's just like, oh, I haven't thought about that. You know, I've been meaning to, so he's going to eat. Of course, I, I, I support this because the last thing, well, here's something I've learned. If you don't, if you want someone not to do something, here's what you do judge them the first time they do it and they won't do it. So I'm not going to judge this guy, not to his face, but to you, I'm going to share that what he said was for several months, at least once a week, he will get his takeout meals. He will get the entree vegetarian. So this is a non-zero change, right? This is, he's acting on something. Okay. And, and, I'm, yeah. and I know that the first thing he does doesn't mean anything in terms of the value of it, because I know that he's going to come back and I'll put anyone who wants to contact me and take a bet. I will take all comers that he will do more after this than he did before this. And he will do it with a smile on his face, but something else hit me. So that's one-on-one people will change. You know, the old phrase, uh, you're like the average of the five people, you know, Mm -hmm. people will act when five people around them act now, maybe six, maybe three, I don't know, but people will change when the people around them change. That's the thing. So when Oprah changes for 10 million people, that's one person in their community has acted throw in a LeBron and a Serena. And now suddenly three people that everyone knows have acted. Maybe that's enough for people to change. Mm. So that's why I have the strategy of the the guest strategy that I have. It also means engaging in debate is a waste of time. It's worse than a waste of time because it digs people into their, it gets them to dig in their heels. What I should have said to the guy was like, here's what I do. I didn't used to do it before. Here's what I'm going to do. And he's like, well, this is the, and I say, oh, okay. Uh, But just know that you've met one person now who has acted. <laughs> if you want to think I'm crazy, go for it. But I'm, that's one person. You're on your way to five. Soon it'll be five. And he'll, oh, what about this? What about that? Okay, you got one. Four more will come soon. Mm. And that would have saved, you know, we're at this cocktail party and there's like a, a, a bubble between us and everybody else. Cause like someone would come over and be like, oh, environmental talk. I don't want to get in that. <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to be in it. <laughs> philosophy it's like people who like to argue they like to argue and they don't like to be persuaded of a different opinion they just like to date their opinion you know it's one thing 
having a discussion and a debate and being open to changing your mind but it's another when you're just like no i'm going to make you listen to me and you will change your mind this is all a distraction from what we were going to talk originally mm. about the question that prompted this so so people know like we got on and we were chatting a little bit before hitting record allison said how are you doing then this happened one hour later <laughs> yeah i started to answer this and i paused and i said you know, i should record this allison what's your read do you think someone even if they're not a New York City resident, would have found what I talked about interesting or irrelevant? I think so. I think it is interesting. I think it like touches on a lot of societal, really tricky societal issues. And what do you do when you want to do and you want to help? I think it might be. Okay. So Alison, I appreciate your asking <laughs> and participating. Yeah, no, it's interesting to explore. And um, if you were thinking of doing that idea with bringing out a table and saying you know professor here free advice I think that is a really interesting idea although the only thing about professor free advice is it's like a power differential that's created between you and the person coming whereas if you just said like smile and a kind word or you know let's have a chat and you just talk to someone about something that they were interested in possibly with the expectation of nothing other than just you doing something to build community, which is what you feel strongly about. I think that would be really interesting. I'm tempted to go to my own park and do it myself. I don't know. It's very different. Our park is just like kids and families and yeah, why not? Maybe, yeah, maybe I just haven't seen, maybe I'm making assumptions here about who would be interested. My original thought wasn't to build community, but to just to serve the individuals who came up to me. There's other people who walk through with the big signs that say free hugs, which during the pandemic is a little dicey. I think that they ask for money afterwards. <gasps> really? A free hug and then ask for money. Donation, please. That's not. I don't know because I've never taken them up on the free hugs. I'm just saying what I've seen in Reddit or somewhere online. But I don't think that they're doing the free hug for the others. I think they're no. doing it for themselves. Right. I'd want to serve others. I'd certainly like to do it. That's why I felt funny about the books. So I say, I propose that we stop this recording. Mm -hmm. 